we have to accept that there's going to be some level of degradation of those enzymes through the conditioning and pelleting process. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty unavoidable if we want to be at high enough temperatures where we're effectively killing pathogens and we're getting a good pellet quality. So you kind of have to accept that there, there's a trade-off there. And if if you can if you can map out, I'm going to lose this percentage of my enzyme, you can potentially increase the inclusion a little bit, but you have to be careful with that um, on, on, a mon on the monetary side. Um, and then looking at, so we know that using these higher temperatures is obviously going to have a negative, ultimately have a negative impact on bird performance and, and digestibility of nutrients. But I'm look, trying to look at, um, go through the data and look at um, including these carbohydrates, including a xylanase on its own or, or a carbohydrate blend. Um, what, the, what the data would suggest is that we're able to push that temperature a little bit higher and maintain performance. A whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Ivonic Animal Nutrition. We are sciencing the global food challenge. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Ivonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonic's focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the uh, today's episode of the Fit Science Podcast Show, and I have a very special guest and uh, one of our former student, uh, Tanner Weiss. How are you doing, Tanner? I'm doing really well. How are you, Doctor Jekko? Good. It's it's good having you here. And um, could could you just tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and uh, your experience? Sure. My name is Tanner Wise. I am a, a PhD candidate at Purdue University in the Animal Sciences Department. I'm currently working with uh, Dr. Adiola on uh, monogastric nutrition. Um, I got my undergraduate degree at Purdue uh, in 2018 in animal sciences and then came down to Auburn with you guys and, and got a master's degree in poultry science uh, with Bill Dozier. Um, focusing primarily on amino acid uh, nutrition research and my thesis there revolved around isoleucine requirements um, on an ideal protein level um, with lysine and then finished there in 2020 and came back up to Purdue um, and started working with Dr. Adiola. Uh, I've done a, a pretty wide range of research, but my dissertation topic um, is revolving around the use of exogenous enzymes to increase nutrient digestibility um, for both broiler chickens and growing pigs. Excellent. And what 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 do you think that is the potential? You know, like uh, of these um, enzymes, because uh, when we look, especially like soybean meal, and uh, we compare, you know, gross energy against uh, metabolizable energy, the birds can only get 
less than 60% of the of that energy what what do you see um uh do you think like all these enzymes in the future are going to start getting better and better just to increase the digestibility of of the nutrients yeah absolutely um so if we look at just the technology of enzymes has increased exponentially over the last two decades and if you look at something like phytase it's gone from being used in in some smaller percentage of diets to at, the, at this point now, especially in the United States and in Europe, you're, you're going to be really hard-pressed to find diets being fed to monogastric animals that are not using a phytase at some level. Um, when we talk about soybean meal specifically, you're going to have a, a, um, the obvious problems with soybean meal that are, are going to be associated with it, with, with the potential to have some anti-nutrient um, properties there with, with trypsin inhibitors. We're mostly taking care of that with the heat treatment, but there's also going to be a number of um, non-starch polysaccharides and oligosaccharides that are partially available to the animal, but oftentimes we're going to be passing those on to the hindgut, which um, uh, we, we want to try and minimize as much as possible. So phytase can play a role in that when you're breaking down those those phytic acid molecules in the gut, you're, you're going to open up that, that superstructure and allow more endogenous digestion. But there's a lot of other enzymes on the market, you know, uh, primarily talking about carbohydrates. So um, there's really general carbohydrates. You can look at things like cellulase that are just trying to break down those those glucose to glucose bonds. But um, when you get over into the hemicellulose lane, there's all of these different uh, molecules that are, are partially available, um, but when they're not degraded, they make up that superstructure as well and, and can increase viscosity and can decrease overall digestibility, not just of energy, but of a lot of other things in the diet. So breaking that apart using more specific carbohydrates, things like xylanases, beta-glucanases, uh, mannanase perhaps, um, there's a lot of options on the market right now, but that can really open up what you're getting from that soybean meal uh, and make those nutrients more available. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, like um, you, you have done some uh, or a lot of research with phytase, right? And uh, do you uh, do you see like additional improvements, uh, not only like, you know, in phosphorus release, but also like in energy and an amino acid that, you know, like uh, the industry can take advantage of those additional benefits? Yeah, so I, uh, I don't have data right now that's suggesting significant energy release. We're, we've got some work that's not done yet that we, we might have some data on that. But amino acids in particular, we know with broilers, phytase is going to increase both the apparent and standardized digestibility um, of amino acids. And there's a, there's a lot of data on that for broilers. Um, I've, I presented some data over the last summer on that, and, and we're working on publishing that. But uh, when you turn your attention to pigs, it's always been understood that, yeah, we're going to get some, some improvement probably with pigs because the the action taking going on in the gut with what that phytase is doing liberating the the amino acids that are bound to phytate um that's gonna be happening in pigs as well but the data hasn't been there necessarily to support that on a very strong basis um and that i think that's starting to change where um in and pigs at multiple age classes if you look in the literature now there's some data suggesting that phytase is becoming more consistent the newer the newer age phytases um, are being more consistent at increasing that that amino acid availability and that's that's a real 
benefit because if you start thinking about matrix values, obviously we know what these phytases are doing with phosphorus and calcium uh, in particular, but there's, um, the way I've seen it, there's a lot of nutritionists who kind of hold back at, at assigning matrix values for other things. We know, like I said, we know it's releasing amino acids. We know it's releasing energy, um, very much so in broilers. Uh, on the other side with pigs, it's a little less known, obviously. But in uh, to talk about broilers, um, getting stronger data to say we're going to consistently get this minimum we feel comfortable with of amino acids so that we can appropriately discount um, those diets and, and potentially move forward with what we're doing in, in enzymes. And that's going to be something that is, it takes a ton of data to feel comfortable with saying, I'm going to discount my diet some percentage um, in protein and amino acids because I really believe in this enzyme. Yeah. And uh, uh, do, do you think like, um, you know, because I see like sometimes when we use enzymes like phytase and uh, we, we are talking about phytase right now, uh, we see some improvements in a uh, feed conversion ratio. And uh, do you think that those improvements are mainly because we sometimes are not giving like the, the, the right amount of release of energy and amino acid for that enzyme? So like the nutritionist might lose some money in the formulation, but they, they can get some money back on uh, improvements in, in feed conversions in the field. I, I think that that's very, very much potentially true. Um, if you look at, for example, there's there's some people suggesting maybe maybe between 35 and 50 kcals at a thousand FTU, um, and if you're not accounting for that and you're upping that energy, you're 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 pretty likely to see a slight decrease in, in feed intake with similar performance. So, uh, and obviously that would lead to improved efficiency. Um, there are other people have other ideas about what potentially can be driving that that feed conversion um, by driving feed intake and there's been research looking at the potential of inositol having effects and there's not um, those studies have not been terribly conclusive but there has been some data that suggests that probably more work needs to go there to see are we doing something is that inositol having some effect in, um, at the brain level at the hypothalamus level driving those birds to eat more um, and if, if we have well-balanced diets to a certain level, if we're driving those birds to eat more, they're going to perform better. Yeah. And I just out of curiosity, Tanner, when you have done like this uh, research with phytase, how much improvement have you seen in, in amino acid digestibility? So on an SID basis, um, we've seen for broilers, uh, I believe the average from our, um, the study I, uh, that we're, we're publishing now was uh, between three and a half and four and a half percent on an SID basis. Uh, and obviously that's one, uh, one case in particular. Um, Callison has published uh, some good meta, meta analyses on amino acid release where he was looking at closer to 2% more consistently across the board. Um, but particular amino acids, when you're talking about broilers, are going to be more effective or more effective. And that's those amino acids that are related to secretory, mu secretory mucins in the gut. Um, things like threonine uh, especially are going to be affected to a greater amount than they, they would be without that phytase because um, phytase is clearly in, in pig or excuse me, in broilers having an effect um, on those endogenous secretions and endogenous losses as a whole. Um, there's, there's quite a bit of data on that at this point where we know that phytase is going to reduce that endogenous loss. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, well, you, you, you mentioned that, um, 
uh, you have been also working with another uh, exogenous enzymes. Um, and um, what what have you seen there, like uh, on you know particularly how many kcals per kilograms would these uh, enzymes help to release? So um, we're working specifically with soybean meal on a couple of carbohydrate blends, and we got pretty variable results. Um, but but so the average we actually got was was close to two hundred um, kcals per kilogram with soybean meal, and I. And I think in a realistic sense, that's definitely high. Um, we, we had fairly variable data. We did get significant results, um, um, even with that variation, because we had pretty good power in those studies. But uh, I think more realistically, you're going to be down around where you've seen carbohydrates in complete diets. So xylanase, most of the time we're counting at 2,000 units, we're counting xylanase for about around 50 kcal of energy. Um, Soybean meal has the potential to be higher than that because there's a lot of currently indigestible energy. So I think the potential to be higher than 50 looking only at soybean meal is there. Um, but when you're looking in a complete diet, um, you have to be careful and, and just focusing on when you're getting from that soybean meal because obviously you're going to have, uh, in the United States, you're going to have corn um, primarily or potential to have distillers grains or some kind of animal byproducts in there. So you're not going to get the same value you're getting for soybean meal. Um, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say a specific number. Um, but I do think, uh, looking at soybean meal with those really well balanced blends, you have the potential to be doing pretty well at an, at a, at an energy release. And uh, ha- have you seen like any, uh, um, uh, effect of the age of the birds or the type of soybean meal that you're using i don't know if you have used like uh soybean meal with you know like 44 percent uh crude protein which will have higher fiber versus like a 47 percent which is going to have a, a lower fiber uh, does that have some effect yeah so we we've been looking at a, a relatively standard fiber soybean meal we uh, uh, if i remember correctly the soybean meal we used in that that carbohydrates those carbohydrates blend studies were just under 47 percent, which is pretty normal for the soybean meal we get here in central indiana um when we when we and we'll do proximate analysis that's pretty normal for us we we rarely get up to that 47 and a half percent that that textbook should say that dehold soybean meal should have um and so in terms of, of looking at different kinds of soybean meal, we haven't done that. Um, we, we, I have not done any, any research myself on effective age, but we know that there is an effective age with a lot of enzymes um, where oftentimes those younger birds are going to be more sensitive to it. But uh, there's also data suggesting while they're less sensitive, enzymes can have a greater relative effect in older birds, um, whether because they have an increased uh, ultimate or an increased total feed intake or because that feed intake is a smaller percentage relative to their body weight um i don't know what that cause would be but there definitely is an effective age um and and that, and that makes logical sense because we know that there's an effective age on digestibility on its own so if you're looking at how these enzymes are affecting digestibility there's there's going to be a clear effective age um but it's something that i don't think can be said definitively that is exactly how you would affect that change and you, just out of curiosity have you done any research with silanases too you know with uh wheat uh soybean meal based um the diets 
So yeah, the most the, the study that we haven't we haven't finished all of the lab work on yet. I can't speak to super specifically, but we're looking at more of a European style diet using um, xylanase and, and beta glucanase with and without phytase. Um, so we we've got some interesting results with that, uh, and there's we're we're essentially trying to to quantify um, the effects in those in those combinations. Um, which is, it's kind of a hard thing to do. Um, and I think that's why there's some really good research out there looking at, at the, what would be the, like the XAP, the xylanase, amylase, protease enzyme combinations. And, uh, and those being combined with phytase are on their own. And there's some really good data on that. Um, so obviously we're looking at a different set of relationships and a different type of diet. And so we're, we're going to see if we can, um, look at how those relationships are affecting a, a host of, of things. We're looking at, at digestibility of nutrients kind of across the board. We're looking at how it affected pH and viscosity. Um, and uh, hopefully we're going to be presenting um, quite a bit of that data at I, uh, IPSF next year, uh, potentially PSA in the following summer. There's still some work left to be done on that study, but um, I, hopefully we're going to see that. And I think while uh, while we're talking about enzyme combinations, I think we have to be really intentional as researchers to make sure that we are designing our studies so that we can see appropriately evaluate these relationships between enzymes. Uh, I think it's really important to either use a factorial design where you are intentionally using those amino or those enzymes all on their own and then building up building up those combinations, uh, and that's been done really well with those XAP. Um, combinations. Um, there's there's good data on that, but in terms of other carbohydrates together, most of the time the studies you see are well, we're using this commercially available blend, and we get an effect, but we it's hard to say what that effect is coming from, especially if they contain a protease or are paired with a phytase. It's very difficult to see what exactly is happening in those diets, and that's that's information we need to be able to appropriately evaluate these enzymes. That, that that that's that's a really good point, Tanner. Um, I I was gonna ask you uh, from the feed milling perspective, uh, what what do you think uh, that you know like meal managers can do, um, or how can they uh, analyze the stability of their enzyme of the enzymes uh, under you know the under commercial conditions? Yeah. Uh- Obviously, enzymes are becoming more heat stable. Um, phytase has been improved greatly. There are, there are heat stable xylanases. And it's actually, I'm, I'm giving um, a seminar next week in the department, and I'm talking about uh, the relationship of, of conditioning temperature and carbohydrates. And essentially, there's going, we have to accept that there's going to be some level of degradation of those enzymes through the conditioning and pelleting process. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty unavoidable if we want to be at high enough temperatures where we're effectively killing pathogens and we're getting a good pellet quality. So you kind of have to accept that there there's a trade-off there. And if if you can if you can map out, I'm gonna lose this percentage of my enzyme, you can potentially increase the inclusion a little bit, but you have to be careful with that um on on a mo- on the monetary side. Um and then looking at, so we know that using these higher temperatures is obviously going to have a negative, ultimately have a negative impact on bird performance and, and digestibility of nutrients. But I'm look, trying to look at 
um, go through the data and look at, um, including these carbohydrates, including a xylanase on its own or, or a carbohydrate blend. Um, what the what the data would suggest is that we're able to push that temperature a little bit higher and maintain performance. Um, so push past that that seventy to seventy six degrees Celsius, up closer to eighty, where we really see that jump in pellet quality. Um, but we're still maintaining pretty good performance, and uh, more work needs to be done on that. Um, uh, I think the most recent work I've I've found on that was from 2020, 2021. So I think that's an area we need to continue to look at because uh, feed is obviously very very expensive, and we want to be getting the most out of it we can. Um, so looking at the potential of of those trade offs, I think is really important. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Like, because we do like um, uh, stability um, trials here in Auburn, and we see, you know, I mean, the enzymes are just becoming more stable. And uh, when you go to the to look the feed mills in the U.S., you're gonna see like typically they they are going to 190 Fahrenheit, uh, so about like 88 Celsius degrees, and they get like a good recovery of the enzymes. But what I have seen too is that in the U.S. is um, the feed mills are going to use uh, less compression uh, ratios in the pellet dyes. And um, I see, like, you can lose some enzymes by, like, the, the frictional heat uh, producing the pellet dye. So um, it's, it's really interesting because sometimes when you increase the conditioning temperature also, you add more moisture, so you do you reduce the frictional heat. So you can I, – I have the feeling – that by increasing temperature, you can lose less enzymes. But like you're saying, it's important to um, to evaluate. That way you can account for those losses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and with the enzymes we have now, they're, they're very clearly getting better um, <laughs> in terms of their heat stability. But there's we're, there also has to be a realization that if you're including these in a pelleted diet, you're going to lose some, and you, you need to be aware of that and account for that in your formulations. Yeah. It's time for our famous three. Well, uh, has been a really nice talk. Uh, you know, I, I, I have learned a lot, uh, Tanner. And um, I think, you know, like, you, just before we end, I, I always like to, to get, you know, some of the advice. What kind of advice could you give? Like, you know, uh, you are at the end of, you know, the PhD. What kind of advice would you give, like, to those students that listen to this podcast and then they are just in the first semester or the of their uh, uh, master program yeah i mean uh, to be to be very honest when i was starting my master's i thought there was no way i was going to go on to do a phd i was pretty burnt out on school um and and graduate classes are hard and that's just a reality um but what i would say is hold on and and get into the research get into what you're interested in because by the time i was through my first year my mind had completely changed I realized that I really enjoyed doing research. I loved nutrition, um, and I wanted to, I wanted to keep pursuing it because um, I knew what I wanted to do, and I needed that PhD to get there. And, and so, um, I mean, I don't think anybody would lie to you and tell you that graduate students an easy graduate school is an easy ride, and it's not difficult and frustrating. Um, but you just have to remember that that you you chose to do this because it's something that you're passionate about. And if you're not passionate about it, that would obviously be different. But um, you have to you have to keep that in mind and realize that you're working towards the ultimate goal of being able to have the job you want to have uh, and do something that you enjoy with your life and are hopefully passionate about. 
Yeah, and um, uh, what about like you know because uh, when I go and I uh, see you like during uh during the meetings and you present, uh, I always enjoy your presentations and I don't know um. I think you have improved a lot the, 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 you know, like the presentation styles. And, uh, would you also advise them to present as much as they can in these meetings? Yeah. I think one of the things that has really helped me improve is I've been asked to do some, le- some guest lecturing and nutrition classes in our department. Um, and, and I've, so I've gotten much, much more comfortable doing that. I just got done doing, doing three lectures for a class in our department. Um, and I, I, at this point I, I'm feeling very comfortable with that. And so, yeah, is present as much as you can. And, and I try and think of it as, as even though I, I try and think of the presentations as conversational, even though nobody's going to be talking back to you, um, while you're presenting at a meeting, um, you almost want to think about it as if they could be where you are, you're discussing these topics in a way that you would be discussing it, sitting with your, the colleagues in your lab where you're, you're talking about it in a way that makes sense and is interesting. And so that's kind of the, the mindset I've had going into it. Um, and, uh, I think that, I think that's helped me some, um, and then practicing a lot. Um, I practice less now than I used to because I've become more comfortable, but, um, practice as much as you can and get, make sure you're comfortable with the presentation. You don't, you don't want to memorize it because you'll be able to tell it's memorized and it won't come off as authentically but you want to you want to know what your what your material is and, and practice that and feel really confident because that'll help when you get up in front of a big room full of people if you if you really nail those first couple slides exactly the way you wanted to that's going to give you really good confidence going down the rest of the presentation excellent and my last question um i i know that you are graduating uh may 2024 um what, what are you planning to do are you planning to go to academia allied industry or work with an you know an integrator so I, I think I want to work in allied industry. Um, I, I would like to, to keep research as some part of my job, but I think I really want to work with producers. Um, so I would really, I think I would really enjoy doing technical service, um, getting to work with producers and problem solve, but still potentially have that research side of the job, um, getting to work, work with, with universities and, and solving problems on that end as well. Um, so that's, that's what, what I'm looking for. Um, I think, I, I think that's what I'm going to enjoy and, and really be successful at. Um, and so, yeah, at that point, that, at this point, that's my plan. Excellent. Well, you know, thank you so much, uh, Tanner. It's, it's good seeing you. And, uh, you know, I hope to see you around probably like in, in IPP next year. Yeah. Yeah. It was good to talk to you, Dr. Jacko. Thank you. Take care.